this is a Vicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Vicom, and I'm very excited to welcome back to the podcast Tal Shalev. Tal, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Um, for those that don't know, Tal is a leading political correspondent. She works for the popular Israeli platform Wala News, and she's also in the past uh, worked as a news editor with the Aretz and the diplomatic editor of I-24 News. Um, Tal, I want to talk really about kind of um, some of the political issues a month into the, the National Unity Government. Um, but before that, I just want to ask you a couple of questions about the, the, the corona crisis. Um, if I can start, apart from uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who are the dominant figures who were leading Israeli policy in the fight against corona? So, um, well, on the political level, I would say that it's mainly at this point, it's the finance minister, Israel Katz, uh, an, a Likud senior figure, and uh, health, the health minister, who's also a senior Likud fig figure, Yuli Edelstein. Basically, um, the Likud is running the policy on the political level. We see Benny Gantz in his title as... Uh, um, as as the substitute PM, um, he tries to be part of policy. He tries to be part of designing the policy. But at the end of the day, um, the three main portfolios, which are uh, which are we're dealing with now, even four, let's say four, the more four most important portfolios: the finance ministry, the health ministry, the transportation ministry, and the education ministry. All of them are controlled by Likud ministers. So yeah. basically, at the end of the day, Netanyahu is running his policy by himself. Up until now, there was also a very, very dominant um, bureaucratic level running the, run, you know, running the whole uh, um, incident, the whole Corona um, realignment. I would say, and that was. Um, the uh, director general of the health ministry, a man named Moshe Barsimantov, a professional um, who was very, very close to Netanyahu, a very dominant person. And he was very dominant um, in, his, in handling the corona crisis up until now. And now he's being replaced by a new director general. Um, so I think we will just see um, a less dominant professional level in the upcoming weeks. And now we see the kind of this, this creeping already of a, of a second wave, whilst obviously high mind, you mentioned the, the kind of the prominent role of the of the finance minister, obviously in kind of keeping the economy uh, running and not going to another foreclosure. Overall, how do you assess the, uh, the, the, the government's uh, dealing with the crisis? Well, you know, the numbers um, and the I would say the general public climax says that they were the, the, the government handled the previous government the new government is handling this okay uh, israel has not had a uh, very high number there are a lot of very high numbers now we are in the second second wave we see very high numbers of infected people but not necessarily of uh, not all of them are sick um, many of them are covid positive but they're not necessarily sick um, so at the end of the day, the numbers of deceased were very, very low in Israel, and let's hope that it keeps that way. And, you know, at the beginning of the COVID virus, there was a huge craze here that the health system would collapse. So in the meanwhile, you know, in the last two months, um, Israel has proved, the, the, the system has proved itself to be very, very effective. 
on that, that's one level, on the public health level. On the economic level, more problematic. Things in Israel take a lot of time, bureaucratically. Um, and now that there's a very large government, it also makes things even more complicated because there are a lot of ministries that sit on the same, you know, areas of interest. And there's a lot of politics going on that prevent um, the money from arriving where it is. Just in the last week, we've seen a very large protest by culture workers, by people who work in the whole performance industry, who not the artists themselves, but actually the backstage performers who have been without work for months. And I have to say that give, following their protest yesterday, um, it was finally approved to open up the culture industry and start getting public performances together. I think the big problem is that many people in Israel, A, don't, still don't understand COVID-19, as in other places in the world, and they don't necessarily understand the orders that the government is given on quarantine or on closure or on maps. And while in the first wave, Israelis were very, very obedient, on the second wave, they're much more skeptical about obeying the rules and the directives. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, okay, I mean, let's let's switch slightly and and focus on some of the politics. As I said, the uh, the the government is about a, a month a month old, just uh, just over. Um, I want to read a couple of quotes from the Israeli media this morning um, and get your opinion. The first one is it was in Ma'ariv. Um, by Anna Barsky. She says, Israeli politics has seen its share of very unnatural partners before, and unity governments are never built on genuine unity. But having said that, unity governments aren't generally built on powerful and authentic hatred either. Um, and the second quote is from Israel Ayom from Mati Tuchfeld says, nothing prepared Netanyahu for the agony of this government, not even all the clashes in the previous government. The combination of a parity unity government with an incompetent like Benny Gantz, a dominant number two with an independent agenda like Gabi Ashkenazi and a bunch of rookie ministers who haven't gone through political basic training have prompted Netanyahu to utter the explicit word elections more than once in closed, closed door conversations. What do you what, what do, you, do you share that assessment that uh, that is things that things are that bad? What do you make of that? Well, I don't think that things are good, uh, but I also don't think things are that bad. Um, it's true that um, almost on a daily basis, the Likud and Blue and White have some kind of public disagreement. They have many reasons to disagree upon, you know, essential and substantial reasons. They don't disagree about annexation. They don't disagree about how um, to treat or how to talk about the law enforcement bodies. They don't agree about the Supreme Court. They don't even agree on, uh, you know, uh, surveillance technologies. That they, they represent two very different constituencies. Um, so there are many problems, and there's also been... Uh, a, I would say a handful of unhelpful interviews that were given by both Likud and Blue and White ministers, which kind of helped uh, create this sense of uh, chaos and mayhem between the sides. Um, and um, it's true that Netanyahu is contemplating the idea of elections because all of the polls show that he will be he could be the big winner of another round of elections. But at the time being right now, there's no, he doesn't 
it's not in his interest to go to elections right now. And Netanyahu is a very, very cautious and careful politician. And he knows very well that until the economy is not stable because of the corona, um, given the corona impact, the COVID mm. impact, um, it will, he will not be going to elections unless he knows that he can win them. Um, it's true that Benny Gantz and his comrades are not Netanyahu's dream partners, and uh, they're not the Likud dream partners. They uh, have opposite views on everything. But I think it's more like growing pains, and it's more about learning to work e with each other. And perhaps this will be the dynamic that will accompany the, the government for a long time, but at the end of the day, if we will go to another round of elections only if one of the two sides have an has an interest in that. And at the moment, no one has an interest in that. Mm. Uh, what do you make? I mean, there are lots of criticism of, uh, of, of Benny Gantz, whether he really has the, uh, the, the, the fight in him as, as more than anything um, to, to, to kind of to, to deliver as prime minister eventually. But I want to ask you about his number two, um, Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi. Um, I, I, as the quote from uh, the newspaper talked about his independent agenda, um, what do you think his agenda is? And do you think he's the, is he the real deal and a potential future leader? Well, um, I won't dive into the relationship between Ashkenazi and Gantz, but it's clear that A, Ashkenazi is a very prominent actor, A, in Benny Gantz's surrounding, but B, also in the government, he was one of the uh, most important force, forces that led to this government um, evolving and mm. also to the break of a blue and white. So he plays a very, very significant role in the party and in the politics. And in the future, um, it's clear that he also has his aspirations. Um, he also has stronger positions on many of the issues than Benny Gantz does. That's, you know, when they talk about his independent agenda, it's not only his independent political agenda, which is, of course, probably more Gabi Ashkenazi orientated than Benny Gantz orientated, but it's also he has a different agenda, um, for instance, on annexation. His position on and he is much more negative towards annexation than Benny Gantz. And just on the mere political level, since Gantz and Ashkenazi are both former chief of staffs and both of them at the basically entered politics at the same time. Benny Gantz just did it like two or three weeks before Gabi Ashkenazi did. So that's why he became first. But there's always um, the question surrounding the, the, the dynamics between them. Is Gabi Ashkenazi eventually um, hoping to take over Benny Gantz at the leadership of Blue and White? That's an option. That's a speculation. Another speculation mm -hmm. that is very, very strong is that he might be even you know, um, directing himself to eventually join the Likud. And people note the dynamic and the independent relationship that he is forging with Netanyahu. For clearly, Gabi Ashkenazi is a substantial actor in Benny Gantz's future. Uh, but first, he needs to decide about his own future. At the moment, as foreign minister, he has much, he has a lot of influence on where the whole issue of annexation will be going. Um, and in a way, he's also bringing back to life the foreign ministry, which in the past few years has been very um, unimportant in the diplomatic process and finally has a minister 
who actually wants to push it forward and to make it influential in the decision making process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a, that's that's a welcome move on the on the country's behalf to have a functioning and active uh, foreign ministry is certainly necessary. And absolutely, as you say, in the context of uh, of annexation, the extension of uh, of Israeli law to parts of the of the West Bank. Um, I'll just for a, for a moment tell our listeners that we've got a couple of pieces I would very much recommend people reading. Uh, my colleague Caleb Ben Dor's piece in Fathom is a must read on the background and the Israeli context to uh, to the move and our own Bicom's recently published analysis. So check that out. Um, but Tal, back uh, back to, to the kind of to the political question around uh, annexation sovereignty. There's a lot of people that think this is not really going to happen. This is part of Israbla. Do you think it's going to happen? Oh, that's like uh, asking me to foresee the, the future, which is something that I try to avoid. Um, but at large, I think there are much more ifs at the moment than things mm -hmm. we can say for sure about the annexation. It's clear that uh, Netanyahu's grand plan has gone a bit crooked. Um, even though he did get in, like he did secure himself the independence to pass an annexation move in the coalition agreement with uh, blue and white. De facto, um, the Americans are telling him that he has to get their consent for the move. And to be honest, I, when, I, when you listen to the positions that Gantz and Ashkenazi present, I don't find, um, it's very hard for me to see a way that there will be something they will agree upon. But then it also depends on dynamics in the White House. As we know, um, there are many voices around President Trump. One of them is uh, the ambassador here, uh, David Friedman, who is very much pro-annexation, probably more pro-annexation than Netanyahu. And on the other hand, we have Jared Kushner. Um, and we have an unexpected um, president who we don't know exactly how to predict or unpredictable president. So who exactly will be the stronger voice that morning on the 1st of July when Netanyahu wakes up and he wants to announce um, his next annexation moves? We don't, ex we don't necessarily know. Uh, but I think that uh, um, we will probably, when we take all of these background noises and we do take into account that Netanyahu generally um, is a much bigger talker than doer, um, we will probably have a much more limited annexation than uh, we thought we would three weeks ago. Mm. And, and how holy um, do you think the, the July the 1st date is, or do you think we're liable to see, uh, to see a delay there? Well, I think the 1st of July is, uh, the will be the beginning of the process, uh, since Netanyahu mm. did uh, specifically... <clears throat> Specifically, he named and he coined the 1st of July in the coalition agreement also because it suits the timetable with the U.S. elections. But it's clear that, you know, any move of uh, applying sovereignty or applying Israeli law, even if it's on a small, a very small community, it's complicated. It takes days. It takes weeks for the legal work and for the uh, mm -hmm. groundwork to be done. So I believe that on the 1st of July, if at all, Netanyahu will be announcing the next step and maybe a timetable for the next step, but not. it will only be the beginning of a very long process that will take time. Mm. 
Thank you. And if I can, just one final question. Um, according to the uh, coalition agreement, there are all sorts of understandings that the, the uh, Netanyahu and Gantz have reached about uh, um, offices and, and cars and kind of the trappings of power. Um, but both sides are kind of blaming the other one for, for, for inserting these, these into, the, uh, into the agreement because obviously they're not particularly popular in the public. Where do you see the line of, of who, who was insisting on these, uh, on, on these uh, additions to the agreement? Well, this is, as usual in these kind of disputes, it's somewhere in the middle. Um, it is Netanyahu's claim that Betty Gantz was the one who demanded to have his conditions and, you know, his um, facilities. Uh, he wanted it to be equal as Netanyahu. And it's true that was originally a blue and white demand, building this whole constitution of a sub substitute PM. Benny Gantz wanted to have all of the, you know, the status symbols that make someone a prime minister. So that means an office and that means, you know, the security tail. And it also means the car and uh, the car arcade and et cetera, et cetera. I don't mm -hmm. think that um, um, Benny Gantz, you know, when you go down into the details, he didn't specifically ask to have, you know, three Audi, Audi cars and to have the most expensive cars, just like Netanyahu. Also, Netanyahu used Benny Gantz's demands and, you know, put his own, um, you know, the, the things that were important for him, he's also going to use them. Um, specifically, we're talking about, you know, the prime minister's residence, um, so Netanyahu used this demand, that this creature that Benny Gantz was creating of substitute prime minister, and he also wants his benefits out of it. So while Benny Gantz wanted to get all of the status symbols that makes him look like a prime minister, Netanyahu wanted to get the fact that the, pay, that the state will continue to pay for his household while he is substitute prime minister. Um, I gotta say, it's a lot of noise. It's a lot, much, how do you say in English? Much ado about nothing. It's much mm -hmm. ado about nothing. These are not the big numbers. Um, not even, not even uh, Gantz's security detail. It's just about, you know, public appearance that makes Benny Gantz look very bad. And saying, having said that, you can assume or you can at least guess where these stories are coming from and who wants to make Benny Gantz look bad these days. Mm. Uh, Tal, always a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Thank you.